If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As the submarine warfare slowly gets established and it becomes very difficult to import food, then it becomes the First World War, as in a sense most wars are, a war about food as much as about guns and fighting. That was Maggie Andrews talking about the First World War home front. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Next Monday, the 18th of June, sees the return of Home Front, the BBC Radio 4 drama series which has been tracking the domestic story of the First World War at a distance of 100 years. Historian Maggie Andrews is a consultant on the series, and I spoke to her down the line a little while ago to find out more. I began by asking her to explain in a little more detail what the series aims to do. It's a series which has been running since the beginning of the commemorations of the First World War, on and off. And it looks at the First World War, not in terms of the battlefronts, but in terms of ordinary people's lives in Britain. It's got this huge cast, and it looks both at how their lives are affected by war, but also the sort of mundane and ordinary things which go on whether there's a war or not. People get exasperated with their husbands and children. They get married. They have babies and so on and so forth. So it looks at really, it puts the home back in our understanding of the home front for the First World War. And it does it through a dramatization of numerous people's lives, focusing on different parts of the country, uh, Folkestone and Newcastle and Devon. You're the historical consultant for the series, is that right? Yes. So since the very beginning, I've been uh, feeding in advice about what's going on and what isn't going on at particular moments in the war. I've been uh, pointing to experts on it and looking at all the scripts to check that they're accurate. Accurate in terms of, I suppose, the preciseness of the detail, but also in terms of the feel of the period. And also because one of the things that's distinct about the home front is that it reconstructs a hundred years ago. So in 2016, it was looking at what was going on in 1916. So it's also about what's accurate for that point in time in the war. And that's quite unique because most people look at the war as a mass. And of course, it was hugely different in 1914 than how it was in 1918. The idea of historical accuracy is something that comes up whenever we're talking to people who are working in historical drama. To what extent do you think it's acceptable to sacrifice some level of accuracy in order to ensure the story works? Ooh, <laughs> I'm a historian. We can't, we can't uh, <laughs> do that. Any historical accuracy. I think there are 
there are various elements. I mean, you can't shift dates of battles or whether people have rationing or, you know, who's been conscripted and, and, and how things are dealt with in that way. I think that sort of element is absolutely important to get right. But then I think it's very difficult to create the feel of an era and it's quite difficult to create attitudes and values and behaviour that uh, people had then for people to comprehend now. So we have a very different idea about how children are treated. And if we we created the historical accuracy of 1914, I think people would find that very difficult. I think there are some things which were um, the way in which people spoke to each other or spoke to women or spoke to people who were non-English. Um, you wouldn't want to recreate that on, on radio nowadays. I know there was an interesting debate early on about um, the first years, first months of the war, there was a massive level of, of anti-German feeling and of urban myths about things that the Germans had done in Belgium when they went into Belgium. Now, actually, to recreate all of that, I think, would have been quite problematic because you can't recreate the feel and the rumour and the way in which they spoke about it without almost sort of propagating a really quite anti-German feeling in this country at this moment. So I think there's a difference between what you would call the sort of factual bits and then trying to get the feel and the priorities and the attitudes and the ways in which people spoke to each other. And there has to be some level, I suppose, of compromise around the, the second one. So you, you do feel we have to take into account modern sensibilities to some extent when we're putting words into characters who, who may not have thought in the way that people do nowadays? I think so, because I think now, you know, they would be totally unsympathetic in some respects, some of them. So nobody would have any sympathy, for instance, for a father who beat their, their children. Uh, and yet that was absolutely normative. Nobody would have much sympathy if in an argument a guy hit his wife. And yet that was fairly common. So I think yet you have to to be careful how you do that because it's 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 a different era. They have different values. So I think that's part of it. I think there's also a sense in which we have ideas about relationships nowadays and to follow through and to understand, feel sympathy for the people then, we have to go with a little bit more of the modern perception, for instance, of marriage and romance and why people do and do have relationships with one another rather than the much more practical approach to these things that many people in the in the early part of the 20th century had and again i think that's sort of necessary for us to us to engage with it now and to feel some sympathy with it and if people don't feel sympathy with the characters then they're not going to go with the stories they're not going to engage with all that history about life on the home front which which they can do through this i guess this has been something that writers have been doing forever. I mean, Shakespeare had his characters often had the attitudes of his own time rather than, say, the Roman times or or things like that. But, I mean, is there potentially some danger there that it means people are going to get an inaccurate understanding of the past and the fact that people did do these things that we wouldn't accept now and did have these bad attitudes might kind of be forgotten? I think there is always a problem with that. But I think it's it's about... I mean, it's not like there is an accurate version of the past, if you know what I mean, that if we just determine we can get to. So I think what matters is that it's a more accurate version of the past and uh, one that stretches and shifts people's ideas about the past to include more things than they would otherwise um, have done and get them to engage with more things. But you always have to accept that, after all, history on television, history on the radio 
it's about entertainment. <laughs> and if it becomes too factual, then it becomes totally grim. I mean, the the, the village, for instance, lost masses of, of viewers in its its second series because, well, even in its first series, because it was too in a sense, realistic. So I think you have to be careful. You have to accept that it is entertainment. But on the other hand, it's can you, in that entertainment, in that ability to reach so many more people than would pick up a history book, can you expand their understanding of the past? Can you stretch it? Can you get them to engage with things that they're not aware of and haven't thought about? Whether it's um, the introduction of rationing or it's the, the treatment of conscientious objectors or the rather appalling treatment towards people with mental health problems and so on and so forth. Can you do that by, you know, making what's actually quite difficult history into something that's that's also to some degree entertaining history. Homefront is now about to begin, I believe it's 14th season. It's clearly has been very successful. What do you see as the secrets of the show's longevity and its success? Well, I think part of it's the show and part of it's the wider wider culture. So there has been an obsession, uh, a sort of slightly unnatural obsession in Britain with the commemoration of the First World War. Um, and there is uh, an awful lot going on outside in the culture, in all the money that the Heritage Lottery Fund has put into the commemoration of the war, that that various research councils, all sorts of universities have put in. So there's a, there's a wider cultural fascination with the First World War, and that helps. I think there is uh, the show itself. It's to do with the fact that what it's portraying are the bits that are not often portrayed. So most people think about the First World War and they think about the Western Front, they think about the trenches. If you're very lucky, they might think about Gallipoli. And if they think about um, the home front, it might be about a land girl or munitions. And by having so many different characters and having different parts of Britain and the time and the space that it's been able to take to convey its story, it's begun to give a much more complex version of, of Britain and the home front so that people are picking up each time things that they're not familiar with. They are. Um, getting a water cooler moment, for want of a better word, uh, about history and thinking, goodness me, did they really do that then? Goodness, I wasn't aware. Lots of people weren't aware, for instance, that, that there was bombing in the First World War. I mean, there was, but, you know, it's not in people's consciousness. Lots of people are not aware of, um, I suppose, how young children went to work, of uh, some of the less than sympathetic attitudes towards people who didn't conform in society or didn't go with, with values of wartime. And I think also they're, they're not aware of things like the profiteering um, and the sort of uncomfortable sides of the First World War. And it's really good to get that in there. And I think that sort of finding out about bits that people were not familiar with has been very important. I think the other thing is that by the multitude of characters that it has there, it's been able to show not just one version, but different people's versions. So you've got different social classes, you've got different genders, you've got different ages, and that actually gives a greater complexity. And that, I think, is is one of the reasons people like it and it's unique. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you've alluded to now a couple of times is the fact that when we think about the First World War, it's always really the trenches. Certainly in Britain, it's the trenches, it's the Tommies. But yeah, it's different with the Second World War, where people certainly are much more interested in the home front. I wonder if you've got a thought on why it's so different in the way we view the two wars. <laughs> it is interesting. On my on my depressed moments, I think it's about Dad's army as opposed to Blackadder, um, because they're, they're portrayed in popular fiction um, in very different ways. Um, I, I mean, I think it's partly that the enormity of the, the Second World War home front and the number of people who had an experience of that or whose family had an experience of that has sort of almost wiped out our knowledge of the First World War, if that makes sense. So growing up in the 60s and, and 70s, people talked in the 50s, they talked about the war and they referred to the Second World War. And people growing up in the 50s and 60s and 70s still saw bomb damage, for instance, buildings in London held up by great wooden structures. So I think there is something quite specific about the, the immediacy of the Second World War for so many people, which has brought the home front very much into, into our consciousness. But I think also, after the First World War, there was a conscious construction of the memory around those who died fighting, if that makes sense. The war memorials are very much around those who died in the war, and that's that sort of dominates it. They're not around those who fought, as they are in some country. They're just about those who died. They're not about, as the praise was in the very beginning in, in 1918, about those who contributed to the war on the home front. So I think it's partly also the construction of memory that has gone on almost quite consciously from the First World War onwards, from the building of the war memorials, the memorialising of that war through the um, British Legion and the poppies and so forth, which has actually made it really very strong in people's minds, whereas there has been a different sort of people's construction of the Second World War and one that has been undeniably picked up massively you know, in, in the media. I think there's also a sense in which the Second World War has been constructed as our good war, for want of a better word, um, as our people's war. Now, the fact that on the ground, it was a very much more varied and different experience and just as full of profiteering and tensions as, as the first. But I think that that's a very um, endearing and empowering image that we have of the, of the Second World War, which almost wipes out the First World War's home front and also almost wipes out the degree in which the two were interrelated. And in some respects, the First World War, almost horrible as it is to say, worked like a training ground, how to, how to do a home front that was then put into practice 
in the Second World War. So lots of the things we associate with the Second World War, rationing, conscription, mass employment of women and, and so forth, actually they slowly work their way towards those things in the First World War. And by the end of it, they sort of know how to do it. And then they do it very promptly in the Second World War. Just talking about this upcoming series in particular, which I understand is quite a big focus on agriculture. So I'd be interested to know on a general point, what kind of impact did the war have on farming communities in Britain? It was massive because at the beginning of the First World War, even though we have that image of, a, of Britain as a green and pleasant land, we are importing vast quantities of our food from abroad. Some 70%, for instance, of our wheat, some 60% of our sugar, Unfortunately, that came from, from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and so that came to a stop. The wheat came from America, very difficult to import into here. The majority of our food stuff is coming from abroad. And although people hadn't initially expected it, as the submarine warfare slowly gets established and it becomes very difficult to import food, then it becomes the First World War, as in a sense most wars are, a war about food as much as about guns and fighting. It's about can you feed your nation? Can you feed... Um, the 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 armies, um, and can you feed them to a level that there won't be social unrest, um, as there was in many other countries, including you know Russia and Germany with all sorts of problems. So then there is a turning on the agriculture and how are you going to be more efficient in your production? What can you do? Who can you employ? And that's at a point that they've already lost, you know, agricultural labourers to go and fight on on the front. So. I wouldn't say that agriculture comes out, you know, much more modernized. There is some mechanization, but it's really the Second World War that most of that, you know, most of the big change comes along. I wouldn't say that we necessarily changed our practices, but I think what happened in the First World War was a massive new involvement by the government, slowly but steadily, into agriculture. So from 1916, we have county war agricultural committees set up, which are going around inspecting the efficiency of farms, which are saying to people, you know, you've got to grow this rather than that, which are actually have the power to actually take over a farm if they don't think it's efficiently producing foodstuffs as needed. So there is a massive involvement and there is a shifting around in the sorts of people that can be used to work in agriculture, and there is a control over that in unparalleled ways. So we're very aware, perhaps, of the land girls, but we're not aware of the huge involvement of children in agriculture, the massive use of prisoners of war in agriculture, the, the, the married women with children who had before and went on working in agriculture. So it was a, was a mobilizing of lots of different people. It was a determination to be much more efficient, and it was a uh, determination that actually government had a stake in agriculture and the right to start telling people what they could and couldn't grow, which is something that people really quite resented. It's interesting. So you're saying that there was quite a lot of tension then in rural areas between people, I guess they've been used to farming on their own accord and then suddenly being told what to do. That might have caused quite a lot of discord. It caused a lot of discord. It caused a lot of problems. So you have got, you know, insistences that they grow more wheat or they grow more potatoes, or they don't, you know, do certain things, don't don't have so much livestock and what have you. And they're having that pressure put upon them at the same time as they're having a massive shortage of fit young men to work in agriculture. That creates a level of tension that's quite remarkable. So we do have 
you know, when we looked and I looked at rural Worcestershire in particular, you know, a, a worrying number, for instance, of suicides amongst farmers that we were quite shocked by um, because they were just stressed out by it. We have not a shift in terms of massive shift in terms of ownership, but we do have a shift in terms of who's doing the work. Um, and those things, I think, are quite problematic and a real, I think, a worrying push, particularly in the First World War, towards children working in agriculture. Which, which I find of concern, the idea that we won the First World War on the backs of 10, 11, 12-year-olds working eight hours a day in, in, in potato fields is not something I'm particularly comfortable with. The fact that children were working, was this a state-mandated thing or did this come about due to the fact there was just a real shortage of labour? There was a real shortage of labour and the farmers are being pushed to produce you know, the materials and they do not have the labour to do it. Um, and so you know, young lads are what they see as ideal and sometimes young women. I think it's also a situation that they were they were slow off the mark in the First World War in dealing with agriculture, and they were very loath to do the sorts of things which maybe would have enabled it to have moved in, in the right direction quickly. So they were very slow, for instance, to guarantee the price of wheat. I mean, if they'd guaranteed a certain amount for the price of wheat right in 1914, then maybe many more people would have turned to wheat automatically themselves. But actually, they, they were slow to interfere. And then when they interfered, they interfered to a level that caused a level of tension, definitely. The First World War is often presented as a time and opportunity for women to take on tasks that they hadn't previously had, had a chance to do beforehand. I mean, how much was this the case in the countryside? And did women see it as an opportunity or did they actually see it as an added burden? <laughs> um, yes, the, the, the First World War notoriously is seen as this great time of, of, of liberation for women. I think when you look on the ground, it looks much messier, much more complex. There certainly was a number of women who worked in domestic service who moved to doing other things such as agriculture, munitions uh, and so forth. But still, domestic service remained the largest employer of women throughout the whole Whole of the war. In agriculture, there was interesting tensions because, I mean, women had always worked on small holdings with their husbands, bringing in the harvests in the summer in various different ways, uh, particularly female areas of labour like uh, poultry keeping and dairy and so forth. So women were not out of the labour market. They were just not particularly visible always when the First World War started. And it's interesting that there was a lot of pressure to get more women to work on the land, and um, particularly to get, uh, they thought maybe married women would like to work on the land more. And there's endless debates go on about how you'll get them to work on the land. A lot of criticism of the fact many of them don't want to work on the land. Will it be helped if you provide a nursery? Is it they haven't got the right clothes to do to do the winter work as opposed to the summer work? Um, is it, as some people say, well, maybe it's just because they're lazy because they're being paid separation allowances for their husbands so they don't want to work. They're all independent now without it. Others see it as a more complex thing. Many women don't want to undermine this skilled labour of their husbands by taking over their jobs for less wages when they're away. Um, so there is an interesting amount of tension around women working on the land. Certainly, young girls work on the land. A lot of university students begin to work on the land. And finally, in 1917, you get the setting up of the land army. But the majority of work that's done on the land is often quite hidden, the work done by women. It is the smallholder's wife who's now got to take over the smallholding. The women who works on her husband's farm but doesn't get you know, seen visibly. The married women who are doing part-time work across the summer and so forth. So I'm not sure that I see it in any sense as a great opportunity. I mean, I think there were shifts and changes and for individual women in individual spaces and places, 
it could be an opportunity. But as a whole, women have worked on the land before the First World War and they worked on the land after the First World War, but it very often was hidden and it was very often in particular areas rather than others. Aside from agriculture, are there any other aspects of the new series that you'd be interested to talk about? Series 14 has got some other interesting elements in it. It's the rural area, so of course being me, I would say, you know, it's fascinating that they're looking at the new women's institutes which are being formed. One of the the really radical things that does come out for rural women of the First World War is the setting up of this organisation which is democratic, has got people from all social classes in the village, is something which has been formed by a lot of, of suffrage workers in many, many respects and people who are promoting women as citizens, as people with a voice and an opinion on everything from housing to to water supplies. And it's promoting the idea that women have the right to leisure, women have the right to speak in public spaces. So I think the WIs, even though they're seen a bit as jam and Jerusalem, actually much more interesting, much more radical, and that emerges uh, out of this period. I think the issues around prisoners of war is something that we, we often forget. The First World War prisoners of war are a group that are not often talked about, and yet they were across the country in all sorts of places, great groups of prisoners of war who helped with agriculture, helped with quarrying, and various other things. And like the introduction of Belgian refugees and large numbers of Irish who came over here, the Australian New Zealand troops and so forth, they gave people in this country a really different interaction with people from numerous different countries. And I think that's one of the things we often forget about the First World War, that, you know, people weren't sitting just in little England. They were engaging with people that they once wouldn't have done. Just one final question, Maggie. When the series has concluded at the end of its 15th series, what impact do you want it to have had on the country's understanding of the First World War? That's interesting. I think I would hope that it has stretched, expanded, reworked people's idea of the First World War to be beyond the, the the trenches and the fighting, to be about the home front and the mundane and the everyday and the domestic world that was influenced, changed, sometimes destroyed, sometimes just had a whole shadow cast over it by this war. And I think, you know, that is one of the things that's really unique about the series. That was Maggie Andrews. Homefront returns on Monday the 18th of June at just after midday on BBC Radio 4. And the previous four years of episodes are available to download as podcasts. Now before we go, I'd like to alert you to a poll we're currently running on our website to discover who you think are the women who've had the biggest impact on history. There's still time to cast your votes, so please head to historyextra.com forward slash 100 women to take part. And that is about it for today's episode, but we'll be back on Monday to talk to Keith Thomas about the history of manners. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.